good morning. You can go ahead and turn back to the passage that Greg read to us, and I'll tell you why we read that on Christmas, or near Christmas. I'm glad to see that we had some folks be able to make it this morning that weren't too deep in a coma from Turkey or whatever it is, but I do got to tell you, I'm happy to report back that, that one of our very own, Mr. Bob Barstad, told me that you can put bacon on a turkey. And I'm here to report to you that that is true. You can. I did it yesterday. And let me tell you, I'm a little, I took a year off my life probably by eating that thing, but it was worth it. So this morning, we are doing just a kind of a one-off sermon. The Sunday that comes between Christmas and New Year's, you kind of are always like, what do I do with this? We know it's going to be a skeleton crew. It's going to be different. People are traveling. We understand that. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at 2 Kings 3, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But let me tell you where we're going uh, in the next couple of weeks. We're going to finish our series on the church for the first Sunday in January, and it's fitting that in a new year, the, that the last message, the Lord timed this all out, not me, is going to be on evangelism and missions. The purpose, the mission of the church is where we'll end that series on. And then we're going to pick back up in John 13. We left off at John 12 about 10 weeks ago now. We're going to pick back up in John 13 and continue marching through there verse by verse. Now, we just came off of the biggest moment in our calendar year as a culture where we think about gifts, we think about giving, we think about needing things or wanting things, asking for things, that kind of stuff. But what I want to think about today is how do we go about that whole concept of gifts and asking for things from God? How do we do that? Well, what's the point of that or how do we go about that? Uh, not frivolous things that we think we want or will be fun, but on things that we are convinced that we need or that are important, let alone stuff that we're desperate for or when we're in trouble and we think that we need that to solve the trouble that we have. So this is what we're going to look at is 2 Kings chapter 3. We're going to look at it in four chunks, and this is a blessed Sunday because not only is there four points, but they are alliterated to the second letter. They're all PR words. I'm telling you, you're going to write this down because this is a day in history that they all alliterated. The first one we're going to look at in verses 1 through 8 is the prompt. In verses 1 through 8, you've got to set the scene. You've got to know what's going on. So Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, he's been reigning for 18 years. And Jehoram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. If you are unfamiliar with biblical history or you're learning these kinds of things for the first time, that's all right. Let me tell you why there's two kings that seem like they're on the same team. Because earlier in the book of 1 Kings, the kingdom is split. You had David be the great king. Solomon, his son, starts out great, tanks at the end, and God says, I'm going to divide the kingdom, but it won't be in your life. It'll be in your son's life. So the 12 tribes of Israel split. Ten up north, two down south. The two down south are Judah and Benjamin, so that kingdom's just normally called Judah. The ten up north are called Israel, sometimes Samaria. But this is Old Testament Samaria, not New Testament Samaria. That'll be another discussion for another day. But they each have their own kings. The kings in the northern ten tribes are always bad. They're all terrible. All of them are awful. None of them are any good. Some of them are less bad. Some of them are more bad. But they're all bad. In Judah, you get a, a few specklings of good kings here and there. Jehoshaphat is one of them. And then you have guys like Jehu, guys like 
Uzziah, guys like Hezekiah, guys like Josiah. Those are good kings down there with a smattering of bad kings. And the worst king of all combined of both is Manasseh, and he's in the south. And that ends, this, that ends the whole kingdom, and they all get taken out. But we're not there yet, historically. We're right here. And you have these two kings, and he, meaning the king up north, Jehoram, son of Ahab, who is the worst king that the north ever had. That's his dad. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. You know his mom is? His mom is Jezebel. You've heard of Jezebel. You don't name your daughters Jezebel. Even if you don't know who she is, you just don't do it. But that's his mama. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made, but he didn't destroy it. He put it into storage because it comes back out in a little bit later in the book of Kings. So he kind of gets rid of it, but not really. He doesn't destroy idol worship. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. And what's Jeroboam's sin? Jeroboam's sin was like, you know what? Aaron had a good idea in Deuteronomy 32 that we should worship a golden calf, but I'm going to do him one better. I'm going to make two golden calves, and that's how we'll worship. So that's how you get this distorted worship in Samaria that when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in John 4, she's so confused about what is real worship and what is not because of Jeroboam. And so this king, the current one, he's, Jeroboam's long dead at this point, but Jehoram keeps up that practice which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now you got Misha, king of Moab, stepping on the scene. Moab is another people group that is adjacent to Israel. Who's the most famous Moabite in the whole Bible? Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. So there's this connection here. And the people of, the, of Moab, they go all the way back to Lot and his daughters and that horrible scene in Genesis chapter 19. So the Moabites are always at war, in a sense, or, or tense with Israel. But right here, they had become a vassal state. So a prior king had conquered them and said, you're going to owe us this kind of livestock every year. Misha is the king now in Moab, and he's supposed to get, deliver the king Israel 100,000 lambs and of, wool, and of the wool of 100,000 rams. That's what you've got to do every year. Ahab dies, so the current king's dad, he dies, and the king of Moab says, I'm not scared of you anymore. So I'm not He rebels against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out against Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. So he's saying, I'm not going to take this. We're going to go to war. But I need more firepower. So he goes south to talk to King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So this is the prompt. This is what's going on. You have this problem arise, and it gets worse by a war being started. What you have here is you have one pagan king warring against another pagan king. And the king, the Jehoram, the king of Israel, he's a pagan. And then the Moabite king. Now they're going to war because of a livestock deal gone south and a breaking of this vassal relationship, meaning you kind of owe us, you got to keep paying us. And he says, no, Jehoram's ego and his self-esteem is so sensitive that when another king refuses to give you some livestock and some wool, you say, that's it, no discussion, no going and contemplating, no conversations, no negotiations, no prayer, no consultations. We're going straight to bloodshed. We're going to war, and I want to make sure that I win, so I'm going to get more people with me. He makes this pact with Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, 
Jehoshaphat also had a pact with his dad, Ahab. They had done this before. I, I think that Jehoshaphat must have had a soft spot for the reunification of the two kingdoms. He also gave his daughter to one of the northern kings, and so like that's there's kind of a family tie there. But Jehoshaphat is a good guy. We're going to see him in a minute. So that was the prompt, and here comes the problem in verses 9 through 12. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So the king of Edom jumps in. You know who the Edomites are? If you go backwards, they go to Esau. If you go forwards, they go to the Herods, King Herods. Those are the Edomites. So also tangentially related to Israel, usually end up being bad guys. So the king of Edom comes along with them because he's got a partnership or a vassal situation with the king of Judah. And when they had made a circuitous march, meaning they're marching, you know, circle-shaped, of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord, using his covenant name, Yahweh right there, or Jehovah, has called these three kings, not the three kings that we talked about on Sunday, or on Christmas Eve, these are different three kings, so kind of Christmassy. He said, they called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So the problem, what's the problem here? The problem is not a political breaking of an alliance or political breaking of a trade agreement or of, of a symbiotic relationship between countries when one king says, I'm not giving you sheep anymore. That could have been the problem. But the problem has moved now to where you have three armies wandering in the wilderness with no water anywhere. And you've got livestock. You've got to feed these guys that you're taking to war. So they have livestock and they have people and there's no water. Jehoram created, so the king of Israel, he created a new and worse problem by taking matters into his own hands, by just marching out to war on his own. He should have had then, but he didn't, and he's forced to turn to God now. Should have turned to God before any of this started at all, but he didn't, and now he's forced to now. And now it seems like he's kind of blaming God. It's like we, he's brought these kings out of the wilderness to, to give them to the hand of Moab. He's blaming God now. Now, not Jehoram, but now Jehoshaphat, he turns to God. Now, he should have done this before they got the armies all together and started marching out of the wilderness. He's right to do it now. It would have been better and wiser to do it at the beginning. And he did do it at the beginning in 1 Kings 22. So the previous book, when he's in a pact with Jehoram's dad, Ahab, and Ahab wants to go to war. He says, Jehoshaphat, come help me. Jehoshaphat says, hey, okay, before we do this, can we ask a prophet of God? Meaning, can we ask God directly if we should do this or not? And that he, he does that last time, but he doesn't do it this time. And you got to wonder, why does he keep hanging out with these trigger-happy guys? And why does he keep bringing his people to do this? But he brings it up wisely, as he should have. We need to go and inquire of the Lord. And then Elisha is so new on the scene because in 2 Kings 2, previous chapter, that's when Elijah 
goes up into heaven in the chariot, and now Elisha is the prophet. Nobody really knows this anymore, except for, providentially, one guy who happens to work for Jehoram, the king of Israel. He says, hey, there's a, there is a prophet, Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He's here. You should go talk to him. And Jehoshaphat says, yes, that's the guy we got to go. The word of the Lord's with him. So there's the problem, and they're going to go now try to address it. So they got the prompt to the problem. Now we get to the promise. So I told you all these PR words. I'm telling you. This is a magic day. Verse 13, and Elisha, so they go, and Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hands of Moab. So when they show up to talk to Elisha, does Elisha say, I'm so glad you brothers have finally come, and now I have a chance to really tell you the truth and to really be used of God in your lives. No, he goes and tells the king, don't you have pagan prophets to go talk to? What do I have to do with you? You don't even care at all about what I say or what I think. Don't you have prophets that you can go talk to? Your mom or your dad? Your dad had a false religion. Your mom had a way worse false religion don't shouldn't you go talk to them elijah his predecessor dealt with them in first kings 18 on the mount carmel calls down fire and then he ends up killing all those prophets so he says don't you shouldn't you just go to them but the king of israel holds to his claim no god brought us out here to kill us the right one true god yahweh and elisha said as the lord of hosts lives this is verse 14 before whom i stand meaning i'm going to give an account to this God, and as he lives, he lives eternally. This God, were it not that I had regard, I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Now that's kind of good pastoral care, isn't it? You come into the office with a friend and say, no, no, I'm not talking to you, but because you're with him, only because you're with him, I'll talk to you. But that's where, that's what's going on at this time. That's what's going on with this, with this king who has led his entire people away from the, from the one true God of the Bible. He's scorned by Elijah or by Elisha. But Elisha says, I, I have regard for Jehoshaphat. These prophets do speak hard truths that are obvious, but they're uncomfortable. It's obvious that Jehoram has no respect devotion or submission to the one true god of the bible he has none but oftentimes what we do when that happens is we kind of go oh, i'll just kind of ignore that elisha doesn't he says you have nothing to do with the real god but now suddenly you're all about him and you want to talk to his his voice box meaning you're, you're coming to the bible now when you should have forever ago and you have no regard for this one true God. When we really need something, is that when we seek God only? When we've exhausted all other options, is that when we pray? That seems to be the heart of Jehoram right here. But he has regard for Jehoshaphat. He says, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't talk to you. Why does he have regard for Jehoshaphat? Well, look at 2 Chronicles 17, 3 through 9. This will tell you why he has regard for Jehoshaphat. If you're unfamiliar again with your Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, they show us in the Old Testament history 
all of the kings of Israel and Judah. It lays it all out. And between those six books, you have a lot of overlap. They'll repeat it in different ways. You'll get a fuller story in different ways. David appears in almost all of them. Solomon's in many of them. And they're explaining all this because it's a big, important time period in history and certainly looking forward to the coming of the Messiah who is supposed to be the perfect king. And we've got to see a bunch of flawed kings. So 2 Chronicles 17 gives us a fuller picture of Jehoshaphat in verses 3 through 9 when it says the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Why? Because he walked in the earlier ways of his father, David. He didn't follow Jeroboam. He followed David. And what did David do? He did not seek the Baals, the idols of the Philistines and the surrounding Canaanites, but he sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments. And not according to the practices of Israel, meaning the, the northern kingdom that remained apostate and remained far from God. He didn't follow them. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. The high places are these pagan worship centers where you put up these pillars, you have the idol, and you're doing sacrifice and all these things. He cut them all down and burned them and got rid of all of them. It was a big deal for him to do that. He got rid of all of that. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hail, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them, the Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemirahoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, Tobadonijah, and with these Levites and priests, Elishama and Jehoram. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Why does Elisha, who is speaking for God, who is the representative of the almighty God of the universe, why does he have regard for Jehoshaphat? Because Jehoshaphat has sought God and taught his word. I mean, this is a phenomenal statement about one of the kings, if you read them in Kings and in Chronicles, that he not only rejects Baal worship, rejects idolatry he goes so far as to cut down all of those places make them desolate where they would go and do that kind of worship then he takes the bible and he sends the levites out to all the cities and says teach the people why we do this teach them why we don't worship like this and we only worship the one true god it's not just that he did right by his own job as king. I'm going to annihilate these false worships, and I'm going to punish people who do that. I'm going to make sure they know why. I'm going to teach them the word of God. That's why Elisha, meaning God, has regard for Jehoshaphat. He brought the establishing and the blessing of the Lord to Judah. And this gave those three kings an audience with Elisha, who then goes on to say in verse 15, but now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Most commentators think that he said, bring me a musician, because he was a little more even keeled than Elijah, his predecessor. So he said, I'm going to calm down first, and then... I'm going to go ahead and tell you what God said. Whereas Elijah is just flying off at the handle and calling fire on everybody and then asking God to kill him two days later. A little more manic. Elisha is a little more measured. 
So he does that, and then after that moment, then the hand of the Lord came upon him, meaning now he's led to speak for God. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and you shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So what is the promise that we get here in these verses? The first promise that God says to these kings is, I'm going to send water. I'm going to fill this dry valley with water. There's not going to be any rain. There's not going to be any storms. You're not going to spring a leak. Nobody's going to drill a well. There's just going to be water. That's it. The water of life, miraculously, keeping you all from dying. Water of life, miraculously, just coming. And there'll be no doubt that God did it. All credit will go to him. God doesn't need natural means or an entirely righteous people in order to do miraculous things and to bless people. That's the first part of the promise. The second part is the overwhelming victory. That They didn't explicitly ask for this, but nevertheless, he's going to give it. That's what all of the, those verses about cutting down all the trees and stopping up the springs of water and, and throwing rocks in their field is like, you're, you're not just going to win against the Moabs. You're going to make their, their homeland desolate where they can't even live there anymore. You're going to destroy these people. But all they came and asked for was water. But then yet he goes on to promise victory against the enemy. It would have been enough to just give us water to live, and then we can just go home now. Because this wasn't a fight if it didn't have to be. He says, no, I'm going to give you water and give you victory. Reminding us of Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you think about that verse too long, your head starts to explode. Because... God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. So then whatever you can think of, he can do beyond that. So then you think beyond what you were thinking before, and then he can do beyond that. And then you think beyond that. Okay, well, we bigger than that. Well, then he can do beyond that. Beyond, beyond all that you could possibly even think that it's okay to ask God for, he can blow that away. And it's purely for his glory. That's part of the promise that they got. I can keep you from dying from thirst and dying from the sword. And not only keep you from dying from thirst and from the sword, but I can make you victorious over these enemies. It would have been enough to save their lives in the desert, but he gives them more than that. And then what is it described as? This promise described as. Here's the verse that just jumped up and grabbed me by the face mask. Is verse 18. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. That's, the, that's what tagged me in to want to come and have to tell you about this chapter. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. Reminding us of Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? 
they were these kings were desperate and despairing what was huge to them was nothing to god god doesn't have to try to do anything do we ever think about that he never has to try to do anything or put forth effort to do anything he does whatever he pleases whenever he pleases it water or military victory that's nothing to god god doesn't ever have to roll up his sleeves and and put forth effort he just does what he wants if he can speak and things that don't exist obey him then come into existence and then become what they are god does not need to muster up any kind of energy we think we don't think explicitly that but when we're in the depths of despair or when we're in trials or when we're in suffering we figure that it's some kind of cosmic tennis match between god and the devil or god and evil governments or god and somebody else and god's good but he's really having to hit strong forehands and his serve game has got to be on point otherwise he might he's got to really exert himself he's gonna win but he's got to put forth effort no he doesn't this is a light thing this is a puff of air to our god now jehoram and jehoshaphat they needed to hear this for two different reasons jehoram needed to hear it as a rebuke you've been worshiping false gods who are impotent and worthless and that's been proven to your not only your father but all of the descending the previous kings beforehand everybody gets wiped out by the true prophet of god that elijah by himself slaughters 450 false prophets of baal on mount carmel alone and god sends down fire and burns up a water-soaked altar rocks meat trench full of water and everything jehoram you worshiped a weak impotent false god so jehoram needs to hear this as a call to repent because it would also be a light thing for god to snuff him out not a big deal at all if it's not a big deal for misha the king of the moabites it's not a big deal for anyone jehoshaphat needed to hear this as an affirmation Jehoshaphat, your faith is in the right one your life is in line with my will i have regard for you so doing this for you is a light thing to me it wasn't like you had to cash in a lot of relational capital like okay jehoshaphat i'll do this but you're going to get close to owing me one here in a little bit no no it's a light thing for me to do this for you i have regard for you because you obey me wholeheartedly now he oh he, he seeks the wholeheartedness but he's not living perfectly why is he out at this battle with this bonehead pagan jehoram in the first place that was not good he should not have done that but nevertheless he's dead he does but he's not trying to manipulate god he's living in a way that is blessable so then the provision comes in the final verses 21 through 27 actually there's three alliterations they're all pro words <laughs> exceedingly abundant beyond right second kings 3 20 through 20, 21 and following when all the moabites heard the kings had come up to fight against them all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and drawn up to the border and when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water the moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood and they said this is blood the kings have surely fought together and struck one another down now then moab to the spoil 
So they wake up and they all get dressed and then they see the water coming down like God promised. And because the red rock that's underneath it in, in this part of Palestine and the sun's shining and they had never seen water here before. When the water going over the red rock and the sunrise in the morning, they go, it's blood. That, all those three kings, they decided to just kill themselves. So that's what's flowing down these stream beds is blood. So we can go and finish them off and it'll be no big deal whatsoever. So, of course, they're deceived by their own pride and by the will of God. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites. So they fled before them and they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water, felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Kir Hareseth, and the slinger surrounded and attacked it. So exactly what Elijah promised. Full, unwavering victory, and a valley full of water. And then you have this weird addendum. When the king of Moab saw the battle going against him, he took him with him 700 swordsmen to break through, opposite the king of Edom, but they could not, so he's... Can't, no matter his strategy he takes, he can't win. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. This odd ending is tacked on to just show these people are not good people. That when you're losing the battle, what you think is, I'm going to offer to our pagan god of the Moabites, Chemosh, a child offering, and that'll please our God, because we're losing, we must have angered him, so I'll do that where everybody can see it, and that'll make it happen. And then the wrath that comes against Israel is that the people, Moabites, see that, and they muster up the last little bit to just kind of kick them out of town. You've ruined our place, you've beaten us all to death, but they, they, they see that sacrifice, and they're somehow motivated by it, and then they kick them out the rest of the time, or the at the very end, kind of a little tiny just surge at the end of the battle which is also to show us that Israel wasn't worthy so this is just kind of a nobody's that great in any of this there are worse than others but here's what I want to end us with is these three eternal truths that we can draw from this passage to apply it to us now so we understand what was happening then well then how does that affect how we live and think about God now in the light of asking God for things. The first eternal truth that we can pull from this is that the church, I mean all Christians, the church is utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God. Three powerful kings are suddenly groveling at Elisha's door. Why? Because they're thirsty. And if they don't get water, they're all going to die. We are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God to provide for us all of their soldiers, all of their chariots, all of their horses and their swords and their shields and their arrows and their bows was worthless because we're all going to die because it's too dry. We're groveling to a prophet that we didn't even know existed an hour ago because we are so weak that we're going to die without water. The mortality and the weakness of Humanity is a gift for us to realize that. This gift came to me, strangely enough, as a young teenager. My favorite football player of all time was and still is Deion Sanders because we had the same last name, and I could go to the store and buy a jersey with my name on the back. And 
didn't have to pay it for a custom fee. But also he was left-handed and he was really fast and all these things. And one time we got to go see the Cowboys training camp uh, before the season started. And it was in like Wichita Falls back then. And it was a bazillion degrees. And I don't know why they didn't have it somewhere up north where it was cold and nicer than Wichita Falls. But nevertheless, we went. And I got to see Dion up close. And he was not practicing or playing. And it, got, it was going around the state, the bleachers that were everybody's watching because he had the, the uh, grotesque, life-altering injury of a sore, big toe. A sore, big toe. And my young athletic self was like, that's the most uncool injury that you could ever have, and that's what's keeping you from playing football? You're the fastest guy in the league. I mean, you could do whatever you want. You play two, play professional football and professional baseball. And a big toe is keeping you out of this. What could happen to me? It was a great moment of the Lord instructing me through the Cowboys, as he often does to us. But we need a a shocking wake-up call that we are impotent. We are weak. We are mortal. And who did they go to at the time of their greatest need? The only one who could do anything about it. Without his provision, they all died. We must acknowledge our dependence upon God as his people. We often hear this phrase, and I'm not picking on this phrase, let me explain. We often hear this phrase, well, that was a total God thing. Or, yeah, let me tell you about it, it was just this total, it was a God thing, the way that it happened. And we all know what we mean when we say that, that we saw in a unique way in that situation God's provision or God's hand of guidance on that situation. But let's reverse engineer that phrase. What is not a total God thing? What moment in our day can we say, no, 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 that was all me. I did that. Or, no, 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 that was all man's ingenuity. That's what that happened. It wasn't a God thing. It was a people thing. Well, of course, we would never say that. We would never say it. But that phrase makes us think subconsciously sometimes that there are God things and there are people things. We do these things. God does these things. God does big and fantastic. We do boring and normal and everyday. But what we need to realize is what these men needed to realize is that there is nothing that is not a God thing. There is nothing that we don't take before him and lay it down because Acts 17, 28 is true. In him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. Jehoshaphat was dead on right to seek God in the crisis, but he was dead on wrong for not doing it at the beginning. He should have asked at the beginning. This reminds me of the story in in 1 and 2 Samuel with David. He goes and fights the Philistines. Before he goes, he says, God, should I go up directly to them? And he says, yes, go up and fight. The next time the Philistines come from the same direction, in the same way, David doesn't go, oh, I've done this before, I'm going to go straight in. No, he says, God, should I go up and fight them directly? He says, no, go around behind, and I'm going to give you victory in a different way. Because in him we live and move and have our being. Our church must not only acknowledge our desperate need for the Spirit of God, but we must feel it. We can do nothing without him. We have to pray as if we are dying without him every moment. We are not up to any New Testament task on our own. No, 
none of it. We're not even up to tying our own shoes on our own. When you bent down to tie your shoes, what kept your rib from popping out, stabbing you in the lung, and killing you right then? The hand of God. In him we live and move and have our beings. Let's be a people committed to committing our every twitch to the Spirit of God, crying unto him for guidance, protection, and provision. Now, secondly, what we need to take away from this chapter is God's sovereignty does not negate our activity. See, Jehoram wrongfully blamed God for his suffering. Now, that didn't happen how it goes. I went into this without considering God. The name Yahweh was not even on my lips, but everything goes wrong, and it's his fault. We're out here, and he wants to kill us. It's his fault. Now, when things went south, he just blamed unkind providence. That's like squandering all your money at casinos and blaming the cards. You're the one who gambled it away. To blame God's sovereignty for your sin and your bad decisions is to adopt pagan theology. It wasn't God's fault. It shows that you don't know God and you're not walking in the truth. That's the negative understanding of it. The positive, though, is this. Verse 16 is translated in the ESV uh, as saying that God says, I will make this stream bed full of pools. Hebrew is difficult to translate, so I don't ever fault anybody for this. But the NASB and the King James, I think they get it right. Because both of those translations say, you go and dig ditches in this stream or in this, in this valley. It says, you make this valley full of ditches. You go and dig ditches. Why would you dig ditches in a dry, desolate valley? Because we believe God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And he's going to fill it full of water. And we're going to make sure that it runs where it needs to run. The charge for them is to take action. See, though God provides, we prevail. We don't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. We do act, even though God is sovereign. We don't stop working because God is working. We're compelled to work because God is working. Work out your salvation in fear, with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you. We don't say, well, God's at work in me, therefore I don't do anything. No, because God's working, you work too. Go and dig trenches in this dry valley because God's going to sovereignly fill them. All we can do is all we can do, but we better do all we can do. I learned this lesson. A, a godly man taught me this when we were, my wife and I, we were raising funds to be in full-time staff with the navigators at Texas A&M, and you had to raise uh, your own salary. And that was the biggest number I'd ever seen. At that time, it was $48,000. I had to raise that from, from scratch. And so all I could do was just, I, I, here's what I was told, and here's what I learned through the lesson of coming through it. I'm going to get on the phone every night from 7.30 to 9 o'clock. So it's after dinner, but before bedtime, I'm not bothering people. I don't want to be a telemarketer. I don't want to be buzzing you while you're trying to go to sleep. So every night between 7.30 and 9 o'clock during this fundraising, I'm just going to call. And every face-to-face -face meeting that I can schedule, I'm going to schedule it, and I'm going to go and just ask these people. Maybe I haven't talked to them in a long time. Maybe I haven't talked to them forever. Maybe they're my parents' friends. Maybe they're friends of friends. But I'm going to do that so that if we don't raise our funds, and if you didn't raise your funds, then you couldn't go into the ministry. You were kept from doing it until you had raised the funds. 
Like, well, if we don't raise the money, it won't be because we were lazy. It will be because God didn't want us to do this. And that way I'll know for sure. I put my pedal to the floor, and if there's no gas in the tank, then we go nowhere. That's, that's the perspective that we have in living in a world where God is completely sovereign over all things. We don't sit around and do nothing because they're commanded, dig ditches so that I can fill them with water. Faithful living invites God's blessing. So we need to be careful here on the caveat on the front end because this could fall into prosperity theology pretty quick. But we must not ignore it because of that, because we're afraid of that. That's like saying, I don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit because charismatics go weird with that, and I don't want to fall into that theology. No, no. If it's in the Bible, it's all of ours. So we move towards it. We need to think, though, that our relationship with God is not transactional or contractual. God's not obligated towards us in any way. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing. Our behavior cannot cause God to act towards us favorably we can't make god do anything because then god is not god then god is responding to something now god is changing and doing something that he wasn't going to do but you put the coin in the slot so now he has to do it we can't say that humans cannot manipulate god or compel him to act in any way we can't compel god however we can and must live lives that are pleasing to God. A New, New Testament example is Colossians 1, 9, and 10. Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You're supposed to do that. And then if you're, if you're being commanded to do it, it means you can do it. Walk in a manner worthy of him that's pleasing to him, which is bearing good fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We should do this. We never demand reciprocation from God. God, I've been walking in a manner worthy. you got to do this for me. We, we can't do that because you know in your honest hearts of hearts that you could always say, I could always be more pleasing and I could always be more worthy. And whatever offering I give him is always a mixture of gold and dross always so you can't we can't ever demand reciprocation but we do it out of gratitude for what mercy we've already received from god all the while knowing that god and his kindness loves to provide for his children in matthew 7 7 through 11 towards the end of jesus's most famous sermon the sermon on the mount jesus says this ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened or which one of you this is jesus speaking so plainly to us which one of you if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone dad i'm hungry can i have some bread no but here's a rock oh or if he asks for a fish will he give him a serpent dad can you give me some some salmon no but here's a here's an anaconda to eat if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, notice that Jesus calls us evil. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And we take that at face value. 
This is the regard that Elisha, meaning God, had for Jehoshaphat. He didn't have regard for Jehoshaphat because he was perfect and he lived the right way. He had regard for Jehoshaphat because he was a child, because he was a son. That's why we can come and ask of God. There's a famous verse, and here we'll end with here. The famous verse that we all know, nobody knows where it is, but it's Psalm 37, 4. We all know this verse, though. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And what is our desire? It's a Lamborghini, and it's an RV, and it's a lake house, and all these things. But when you down, and you go, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If my delight is the Lord, then what will my desire then be? Can I separate delight and desire? Well, I delight in the Lord, but I desire a truckload of cash and to retire at age 40. That, then that's what you delight in. It's not the same. If I delight in the Lord, then that's what my desires will be. My desire will be him. Because he's my delight, then I just want more of him. If I delight in this food, then I just desire more of it. If that's what brings me delight, joy, happiness, then my desire will be it. That's what I want more of. See, Jehoshaphat loved God and his word, and he spread it, taught it all over Israel, and God gave him water and victory in spite of his foolish decision and his pagan, unbelieving co-conspirator. See, we, as the people whom Christ has saved, we have living water drenching the desert of our hearts. And we, as the people whom Christ has saved, have victory over our eternal enemies, not the Moabites. We have victory over sin, death, and the devil. So we can personally trust him to provide for us what we need to delight further in him. And I'm going to tell you this, how I'm personally dealing with it. I had to preach this because I had to deal with it myself. So that's what you guys got today. I read this chapter and it was like, this, this, the light thing came to me. Where I'm personally dealing with this is is looking for the associate pastor for our church and building for our church. How do I ask God for those things in a way that I, he has regard? How do I live in a way that's blessable? How do, I, how do I go about this and consider him and my need for him, but also not sit around and do nothing and not dig any trenches? So this, this is where I'm wrestling with this. And so it, I just wanted you to know this is, this is actual happening for me. So I preached this at me today. You got to hear the echo. But I'm glad because this chapter is, is uh, neglected in our scriptures, but it plays a huge role for us even today as New Testament Christians. So I hope that it was a blessing to you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for these stories that seem obscure and distant. Lord, we're not, we're not B.C. era warlords. We're not kings of Near Eastern countries, and we have no idea about the rain cycles in the area of Moab. And Lord, we know that Misha existed because the stone that he wrote his history on is in the Louvre in Paris, but we don't know him, and we couldn't pick him out of a crowd. So Father, we thank you for bringing a truth through human experience all the way from those millennia ago and placing in our laps today and showing that it matters for us today and it's instructive for us today. 
where we do want to be people that you have regard for. Not because we seek to manipulate you, that if we play our cards right, you'll give us what we want, but because we want you. And Lord, we, we want to want you before we need you. We want to want what you have, your grace, your goodness, your, your infinite wisdom, the glory of your gospel, of your triunity. We want to want that before the diagnosis comes back as cancer or before the layoff happens and, and the power bill is due. We want to want all of that beforehand. We want to live a life similar to our brother in the faith, Jehoshaphat, that when it comes down to the need of it, we're not just now coming to you. That we have loved your word. We have been jealous for your worship. And Lord, we as those on this side of the first advent and also the cross, that we love your son. And we have been redeemed and made new by his substitutionary death on the cross for us. So Lord, may we be those kinds of people and may we take great care for what we ask of you and and look inwardly in our hearts and may we not resist the the situation or the circumstances that you put us in in order to drive us to you like jehoshaphat we should have thought about it earlier but it was your grace to put him in a position to now call out to you again so may we not may we not be bitter or frustrated with the circumstances that we're in where we need to come and ask for you but may we relish in that, that we are mortal, we are infinite, we are weak, and we are powerless, that we can be rendered completely neutral if we're just too thirsty. And may that cause us to rejoice because we are loved, owned, adopted, and justified by a God who never thirsts, who never hungers, who never sleeps, who has no need of anything, can be overpowered by no one, is influenced by nothing, but always perfectly and eternally does what is right and good for your glory and our building up. May we rest in that. And we ask this all in your Son's name. Amen.